Greetings, friends, and welcome to the show today. I'm incredibly excited about having with me Jim Wallace, who's the author of a new book entitled The False White Gospel that will be coming out April 2nd. And we're going to be talking uh, about Jim, with Jim about that book. But also with me is Walter Brueggemann, uh, clearly the most prolific uh, biblical scholar of the last uh, 60 years. And the two of them combined, I think, have about 110 years of prophetic voicing uh, to the church and, uh, and to, the, to the world. Uh, what God has been up to in the world. And so I just think it's an incredible delight, uh, delightful opportunity to have the two of you together. And so thank you, Jim. Thank you, Walter, uh, for our friends who are listening or watching. This will be loaded onto my podcast, The Church Dismantled, as well as uh, the Walter Brueggemann Prophetic Imagination uh, podcast, and also on my YouTube channel called Conrad Kanegia Prophetic Imagination, and a variety of other places, including Facebook. Jim, welcome to the show. And uh, this this false white gospel, uh, can you tell us what, what the motivation was for writing this and uh, why this book now, Jim? Well, let me start by thanking you, Conrad, for the wonderful work you did on Walter's biography, which I was very happy to support. And, and Walter, it is an honor, just such a joy to be with you today. I'm old enough now, Walter, that people sometimes call me an elder, but you've been an elder to me and to so many, <laughs> such, a long, such a long time. And so, uh, and a partner, we have worked together so much over the years. So it is a real blessing, a blessing uh, to sit down with both of you today. Um, why I wrote this book, um, this book hit, became kind of almost almost a manifesto for me at this critical moment. We face choices. We face tests, critical ones. Uh, I think we're facing a test of democracy. Many people are now aware of that, more and more, hopefully. But also a test of faith, the integrity of our faith. And both are critically important, as Walter knows so well, the Bible talks about two kinds of time, chronos time, normal, slow, tick-tock, and kairos time, where a moment in time can change time, can change things for a long time. I think we're at that point right now. So I wrote this book to try and speak to this, uh, what I'm going to call the faith factor in this uh, critical electoral season campaign. Uh and there's a lot of bad religion running around this country now, rising, growing in support of anti-democratic, autocratic movements and trends and candidates. And I think the answer to bad religion isn't no religion. It's better religion, or I'd say true faith. And for me, that's always coming back to Jesus for when I was a organizer in college. I was secular, been kicked out of my church uh, over the issues of race uh, and poverty and war, but I could never quite get shed of Jesus. <laughs> and he kept whispering in my ear and coming back to me, and I finally came back to him and went to seminary and sojourners began after that. But uh, we face a heresy of white Christian nationalism. And heresy is what draws us away from Christ. And so to counter that, we've got to come back to Jesus again and again. So 
I would I would say the 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 name spells the heresy. First of all, white. I mean, this is the most inclusive, egalitarian gospel message on the planet in history. Um, uh, and yet it's called white. Uh, Christian, but they don't mean service. They mean dominance, domineering, control, taking charge of institutions of the nation from the top down. Uh, that's not Christian. And nationalism, my goodness, Jesus' last word to us was go into all the world and make disciples, teaching them the things I've taught you. Uh, uh, the body of Christ is the most, what, diverse, inclusive community on the planet. Uh, not so much here. So to me, the name spells the heresy. So I take, in this book, I take six iconic biblical texts uh, that many of your listeners know well, and try to reframe them and refresh them for a new time. And to do so for Christians and churches, but also for others of different faiths or no faith at all. But these ancient texts could help bring us back uh, and lay a foundation for, well, the first multiracial democracy in the world. That's what we would be creating, and that's what's at stake here. So how do we how do we take the gospel and bring us back? And I'm calling the future for us maybe a remnant church, a remnant church. I'd like to talk about what that might mean, but also to to really uh, take on this terrible narrative we see all around us of white Christian nationalism. I'll close by saying, with, with this this thought movements have to decide who they can persuade and who they have to defeat nonviolently. I think there's a lot of people out there who are stuck, confused, oblivious, uh, but hungry for something different. I think there are persuadables out there, uh, but I also think there are people who are very militant in their in the idolatry, false worship of Christian nationalism. And those people have to be defeated at the ballot box in this election year. So Jim, I as I've written some of uh, some posts on Facebook about uh, white Christian nationalism, part of the pushback I've gotten is, well, wait a minute, I'm just uh, trying to get Christians elected to office to save Christianity. So what do you mean I'm part of this uh, white gospel movement, Christian national movement, how would you respond to those questions that they're just trying to save the faith too, Jim? You're all of the same interest in mind. Well, that's why I do these biblical texts, most teachers of Jesus, and say, okay, uh, do we believe these or not? What's mm -hmm. going to be the title of the book? Do we believe this? We say we believe or not. And I'm happy to, I hope this, this uh, year, this book is a tool for people to use, and it's a conversation, a debate even, that I'm quite happy to have, and more importantly, that pastors can have in their own congregations, their own communities. Mm -hmm. What did Jesus say, and what did he do? So uh, Christian nationalism is a false worship of a nation to start with, but I think we won't, we won't win this conversation with just politics or our media, 
Uh, we can only win it with let's really have a whole fresh new conversation about who Jesus was, what did he say, and what did he mean. Jesus has suffered an identity crisis in America. <laughs> when I see prayers shouting Jesus as insurrectionists take over the U.S. Capitol and take the Senate gallery, flags, Jesus flags, Confederate flags, Trump flags, something has gone terribly wrong, and it's usually that we've lost Jesus. So I want to go back to that, and let's have a debate about that. What does our faith mean in relationship to this crisis that we now face? Walter, I've heard you say often that it's neither right nor left, but it's going deeper with the text, and I've heard a very similar thing from Jim. I'd just like to give you an opportunity to respond to Jim or to add your own uh, expression of concern or what you see happening these days, That because uh, you've written about this, this matter as well. Well, I'm uh, very grateful for Jim's book, and I, I think the distinction, Jim, that you make between those uh, who can be converted and those who must be defeated is a really uh, important uh, distinction because there are people who are not uh, going to be converted in our lifetime and our energy should be to those who are who occupy uh, middle ground or who are open or who are willing to think differently uh, and I think uh, this represents uh, an important challenge, uh, particularly to liberals and progressives, because for the most part, uh, we think about our faith and our discipleship within the cocoon of white capital, of either the Roman Empire or the Jewish uh, establishment of his time. And so he defied all of those categories and this is more radical than most of us are able to, to entertain or even to think about, leave alone, act on. So I think this is a, a, a huge thing that you have done. And obviously at the, at the center of uh, what you have to say was in a capitalist society, uh, we don't readily think about giving ourselves away as he did. Well, I think his, uh, Jim's word is uh, of overriding urgency to us. And I think his distinction uh, between those who can be converted and those who must be defeated is, is a really very important, which means that uh, uh, the, the, MAGA, the MAGA white nationalists are not going to be converted. Uh, but this is an urgent word to liberals and progressives, among others, um, you have written much from the biblical text about some of the issues that concern uh, Jim in this book, The False White Gospel. In fact, it, for you, it goes back most of your writing career, um, and certainly in the 70s shifted as you began to uh, delve into Marx and to economics and so on. Um, what what about what Jim is up to strikes you as particularly important uh to both left and right and to this moment of history in our country. And white capitalism uh, is committed to uh, getting what we can, even if we follow Wesley about earn all you can, save all you can, spend all you can, it's still not giving self away. 
So Jesus' radicality challenges us all beyond our ordinary assumptions about economics or politics or faith. Uh, and I think that uh, Jesus' self-giving all along the way of his pilgrimage to Jerusalem was a run-up uh, to his execution by the Roman Empire and God's solidarity with his self-giving. So what Jim is teaching us is that self-giving toward the neighbor uh, is a contradiction of the dominant values of our society to both liberals and conservatives subscribe. So there is a radicality to Jim uh, that needs to be hosted by all of us. And I think Jim sees that the church is one place where this radicality can be hosted uh, with honesty and uh, with hopefulness. Walter, thank you for that articulation. Uh, so clear and so uh, uh, prescient. Um, Jim, you want to respond to what Walter said? Well, uh, I, I always, uh, I'm always wanting to respond to what Walter said. Getting back to Jesus yeah. is what we're both saying here. Yeah, yeah. And I think uh, for us, that's been a lifetime of of work. We face a challenge, a crisis uh, larger than anything in my lifetime, which has been a long time, really since the Civil War. This is going to be uh, a time when not only could we lose democracy, we really could, uh, but we could lose the integrity of our faith, uh, its perception, and a whole new generation will be paying attention to whether the churches come down on the side of, uh, of uh, you know, gospel values here. This is so yeah. much de deeper than politics. That's, so right. that, that's why lots of books have done a good critique of white Christian nationalism. I summarize their work and summarize that. But this book is mostly about these, these iconic biblical texts and how if we come back to them right now and bring this discussion into the narrative about the nation, uh, that could take us to a much deeper place than partisan battles left and right, back and forth. And so I've taken these uh, really, uh, to me, iconic ancient texts try to rethink them. Uh, I, scholars, I quote, exegesis I do, uh, but I'm trying to apply them to where we are right now and the choices the nation is facing. So uh, we can't control the politics, uh, but we can take responsibility for the faith narrative. And I want the, the, the faith factor in this election campaign, this national discussion, which is about the soul of a nation. I want the faith factor to be strong and clear in this conversation going forward. And the book is trying to provide tools around these key texts to help pastors and others do that. Pastors have got to preach during this election season. Many talk to me, they don't know what, what to say. So I've laid out these texts they can preach from about going back to Jesus. So 
it's so much deeper, as Walter and I always try to say, than just politics. Uh, yeah. Don't go left, don't go right, go deeper is what I always say, and and uh, we, we concur on that. Uh, but this is a moment we have to put that into practice right now. Yep. I appreciate it, Jim, uh, the way you lifted up Galatians 3.28, in which Jesus uh, enunciates this uh, triad of uh, pairs of male and female and Jew and Gentile and slave and free, uh, in which he declares the old categories are no longer operative in the new governance of God. And uh, what, what the church has to struggle with is the way in which we ourselves are the heirs uh, of these old either-ors. Uh, th these are categories that we have taken for granted in our society, and Jesus declares that those categories are inoperative. And uh, to your point about preaching, Jim, I think one could preach a year on Galatians 3.28, and, and and what it was like at the church in Galatia, uh, where these either-ors were obviously operative in the Roman Empire, and to be this community that said, no, we will not organize our life, we will not perceive the world through these word bearers, because Jesus has shown us how those are not operative in the governance of God. So there's so much uh, in just one text to work on. Well, that text, uh, Walter, I discovered was a baptismal text formulated yes. in the early yes. church. Yes. Whenever yes. there was a baptism, they'd read this text. Yeah. This text. Yep. Yep. And so that's like they're saying, okay, we, we are this community following after this uh, itinerant, brown-skinned Palestinian rabbi. <laughs> and in our community, we overcome these barriers of race and class and gender. Yeah. That's what we do. It's not extracurricular. It's core to our mission and vocation. That's what we do. And they're saying, if you don't want to be a part of that kind of community, then you better go somewhere else. That's right. That's right. Because that's who we are. And yes. wouldn't it be wonderful if American churches we're saying that at all of our baptisms, this is who we are. We break down these barriers. We overcome these pillars of division in human society. And I, I found that this text, Galatians 3.28, was stricken from all the slaveholder Bibles. So at Fisk University, there's a slaveholder Bible. This text is gone because they were afraid this text leads right to multiracial democracy. Yes, that's right. And then, and then, as you know, in Galatians, Paul goes on to say about the fruits of the Spirit. Uh, Paul says the fruits of, of living into this baptismal formula of 328, uh, out of that comes love, joy, peace, kindness. I think, I think uh, Paul is saying if you overcome this triad of divisions in 328, it will lead to a life of joy, peace, patience, kindness, forgiveness. So, so he, 
traces out, Paul traces out the practical implications of the of Galatians 3.28 for the actual practice of the life of the church. It reminds me, Walter, of your own work on emancipation. That as you've described through your life, you increasingly moved from kind of a moralism or categorical way of living to an emancipated life and freedom. And these way you've described this, these scriptures reflect that. And so I think of the text that Jim has also picked out, I think from John, about uh, the truth will set you free. Is that right, Jim? Well, this is foundational. Uh, Jesus says you'll know the truth and the truth will make you free. He's not saying uh, you'll know the truth, so just lie less. He's saying that the opposite of truth is captivity. <laughs> the truth and freedom are indivisible. So this is one of the biggest concerns I have right now, the disinformation, the misinformation, the outright lying of political candidates, uh, how a whole political party has accepted and is running on a big lie of a stolen election. So it's actually, it's attacking the idea of the truth, that there is no truth. I talk in the book about when Jesus and Pilate are having their debate on truth, the day of his, his crucifixion, uh, Pilate is losing the debate. <laughs> and so Jesus uh, is confronting him and he says, oh, Pilate says, what is the truth anyway? And washes his hands and kills mm -hmm. Jesus. So strong men always want to say there is no truth. There is no truth. Just listen to me. I'm the strong man. So this truth question is essential to understand if we're going to, again, uh, protect democracy, but also protect uh, the integrity, the meaning of faith. Truth is central to everything that we do as, as uh, followers of Jesus. Walter, you want to reflect on that at all? Yes, you said the truth will set you free. And what's amazing is that at the end of his letter to the Galatians, Paul says, for freedom you've been sent free. Do not submit again to these phony categories. So it is really uh, an emancipation for for the life that God has intended us to live. Yeah. Some call, Jim, the, call this text the great emancipation text, <laughs> which it really, really is. Yeah. Jim, these texts yeah. are central. These six texts are central to your uh, to this work. Um, do you want to reflect on one or two others that uh, you think would be particularly useful to pastors who are preaching in this season? Yeah. Well, one one of them I quote Walter's work in. It's this uh, Genesis. 126, first chapter, first book of the Bible. The noise is everywhere. I like to hear all the political noise, but the text begins with what I love. Then God said, shut up the noise. Then God said, let us create humankind in our own image, after our own likeness. Uh, this is the Mago Day. This is the bedrock for us of of human dignity, human rights, uh, even voting rights. So any attempt to uh, suppress a vote because of the color of someone's skin, which the North Carolina Supreme Court called uh, tar their laws were being surgically targeted on racial minorities to disqualify them from vote voting. Any attempt to do that 
to suppress votes because of skin color is really an assault on Imago Dei and nothing less. So at the core of this is concern about racism. Well, uh, this is this is the ideology of racism, which Walker and I have spoken a lot about, uh, undergirded by this, this uh, idolatry of white Christian nationalism. So yes, it's about it's about how how the image of God is at stake in even an election campaign like this. If we are able to achieve an inclusive multiracial democracy, that is so reflective of that Galatians text and respecting the image of God and dignity of all God's children in every election process, structure, behavior all across the country. So this is really so critical to what we're doing right right now. The image of God is the bedrock uh, of our our ethics about uh, economics and politics and everything else. And and so much of white Christian nationalism is also excessively male. Uh, Absolutely. So to to draw male and female. Uh, into the image of God, as Paul does, there is no male nor female, so it all becomes a package and gender uh, together. So when we are when we are working on gender inclusion, uh, we are also um, um, bootlegging the race question. That all of these uh, uh, distinctions and pairings are inimical to how God has ordered the world. And there's such a powerful uh, uh, foundation for all of our work. It's so much deeper than just the political battles going on. It's, um, I, I talk about how Paul so theologically speaks here about the male and female gender question and wonderful yeah. scholarship I bring to bear on all of this. And really it's, it's, it's the inclusive multiracial de- democracy has got to be everyone. It's got to be black and brown, Asian American. It's got to be uh, young people, uh, poor people, older people, LGBTQ people, where every initial in LGBTQ uh, stands for someone beloved of God. <laughs> so, so what we're trying to achieve here is something so deeply rooted in our very scriptures. And so, I want Christians and pastors to go back to these scriptures. Uh, the good, the Good Samaritan parable is also very foundational to me. Jesus is asked a question by a lawyer who I think is a Washington lawyer. I can tell by the tone of his voice. <laughs> he says, "Who is my neighbor?" And indeed, Jesus gives the example of the Samaritan in Judean culture. There are no there, nobody thought there would were good Samaritans. No good Samaritans, just bad Samaritans. Uh, the Judeans didn't like them. so. Here's this 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 example of one who is the other in Judean culture helping someone along the side of the road who is other to him. It's likely a Jewish man that's beaten and robbed, and a Samaritan comes along to help him. So the title of that chapter for for me is uh, your neighbor likely doesn't live inside your neighborhood in America. So how do we understand the neighbor 
so so differently and more broadly than just our own neighborhoods. Uh, just like the Galatians text says, our community is not a tribe. The Good Samaritan parable text about the neighbor says, your neighbor is someone you'll have to approach, have a different approach to find you to find your neighbor and don't let the other side tell your neighbor is your enemy. Even our enemies, Jesus says, says we have to love. So again, that Good Samaritan parable, Walter, is crucial to asking maybe the most important question facing us in this election year. Who is my neighbor? Yeah, yeah. Walter, you have written so much about neighborliness um, and the neighborhood and being a, a neighbor. And in fact, your forthcoming book coming out in August called Poverty in the Promised Land is a response to Desmond Matthew, Matthew Desmond's book, Poverty by America. And you use neighborliness as, 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 as a way to resolve the segregation within neighborhoods. Uh, you want to say more about why neighborliness for you has been um, a, a solution or uh, to this kind of uh, segregation? Well, what comes to mind is the way in which historically the church had has tried has tried to separate the two great commandments of love God and love neighbor, and we have imagined that you could love God without loving neighbor, uh, and and uh, Jesus refuses to separate the two. So it turns out that the only way we can love God is to love neighbor. Uh, uh, Jeremiah uh, 22 makes that very clear when it talks about uh, uh, King Josiah, who says he cared for needy people. And then he says, is this not to know God? So loving neighbor is a mode of knowing God. And and uh, the, the whole Jewish tradition to which Jesus is heir simply refuses to separate those two claims. The Matthew Desmond book, um, I did a podcast with him. Uh, he talks about uh, the influence Walter had on his family. He's son of a pastor. And his book is Poverty by America, not just Poverty in America. Yeah. And so this gets to the one of the other core texts for me, which is my conversion text. Dorothy Day is behind me on my shelf. Uh, it's Matthew 25, which I think was Jesus' final test of discipleship before he went to Jerusalem to yeah. die and be resurrected. And here he's saying, all these people, the sheep and the goats, they all think they belong to him. They all think they're his disciples. They all think they're following the rules. And he says, I call it the it was me text. Uh, I was hungry. Mm -hmm. I was thirsty. I was naked. I was a stranger. The word there means immigrant. I was sick. I was in prison. Uh, I was that mom in Flint who couldn't get her kids clean water without asbestos in it. I was that mom who, who was working three jobs and still needed food stamps. It was me. And so Jesus says, as you have done to the least of these, you have done to me. That's more radical than anything I had read before in my activist student years in Karl Marx, 
Che Guevara and Ho Chi Minh. <laughs> it's the most radical thing I ever read. And it brought me back to Christ. And so I lay out that text. It is really the economics of Jesus in Matthew 25 that transforms our politics. Yep. So I know, Walter, that text is crucial for you as well. And mm -hmm. for me, it was my conversion text. And right. it's 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 in the heart of the book here. Yep, yep. You want to respond to that, Walter? Well, I think that that uh, uh, that that parable uh, is a commentary on sure. Psalm 147, which which names uh, the targets of God's compassion as the poor, the needy, the widow, the orphan, the immigrant. They're, they're all there in the in the doxology of Israel, and so Jesus capitalizes on that to say these become the litmus text for what the practice of faith is about. Yeah. The other text is uh, is the Matthew 5 text, uh, uh, where in a world now of very highly polarized politics with political violence on the rise, which I talk through in the book, uh, Jesus says, those who are called the children of God are the peacemakers, not the peace lovers or the peacekeepers of unjust situations, but the conflict resolvers get the special distinction of children of God. And white Christian nationalism, not only don't they display the fruits of the spirit, which you outlined eloquently a few moments ago, but they're also conflict makers. They're conflict makers. They divide, polarize. Even in churches, they're telling people how they vote. They should have to leave the congregation. Uh, but this wonderful, blessed are the peacemakers, is so crucial to our polarized moment right right now. I'd love to know how you think that applies to where we are these days. Well, I think that's exactly right. And I, I think uh, Jesus' teaching about that is a judgment control so is talking about uh, Jesus teaching means to contradict the claims of the Roman Empire or the claims of any empire including white nationalist USA uh, so it is uh, people who live outside the dominant system of violence the dominant system of viol violence it's people who live outside the dominant system of violence who are the peacemakers and we live in a we live in a in the United States in a system that, that is uh, uh, governed by a market dominance uh, which is exploited Jim there is a lot your focus in this book is is really um, to provide some practical ways for pastors and congregations to address these issues. I tell my students, you know, language comes before ideology, that we get so accustomed to language, but it forms the ideologies that we create. Walter likes to say that words create worlds. You are offering us some new words, uh, Jim, a refounding of democracy, remnant church. Um, could you say a little bit about what those be, is be, are behind those words, which is a, your effort to, I think, create new worlds for us? And how that could, how this is instrumentally important for pastors, a book like this. 
my friend Eddie Glaude, who wrote the foreword to the book very, very kindly, um, uh, says this, we're at a moment where everything is about to collapse and everything is possible all at once. I think that's where we are. And so uh, I don't want to just critique what's going on. I want to lay out the vision, the hope, uh, the, the real, I think, possibility, promise of a new American church. And I call that the remnant church here in the book, because I believe there's a there's a a minority, perhaps, of white believers, particularly a younger generation, younger generation who are really ready, eager, hungry to stand alongside their the black and brown church leaders of this country and the young people in the streets and to form really something something new, not just be against the old. This book is more about what's possible, what's new here. And the Remnant Church, I think, I've been talking to lots of young people I teach at Georgetown, uh, many young people who'd be in the none of the above category, the, the nuns. But that's not secular. Most of them believe in God or something larger than themselves. But they're looking to see how Christians respond in this this uh, moral crisis now that we face. And I think out of this, um, not only can we say, much is say, but we have to fulfill democracy. Democracy is not yet fulfilled. There's a chance of being able to do that now. And if we can do that, uh, we can create literally together a remnant church with a lot of young people who are ready to do something because of what they believe. And to me, that is so exciting here. And uh, Walter always asked me about hope. That's always the issue he wants to raise. He's smiling here. And I think that's crucial. And I had to tell the story in the book in that Remnant Church chapter about um, my dear friend and tutor, who now my new chair at Georgetown is named after, uh, Archbishop Desmond Tutu taught me that that optimism and hope aren't the same thing. Optimism is often a feeling or a mood or a, even a personality type, cup half full, cup half empty. He said, no, that um, hope is a decision. <laughs> it's a choice you make because of this thing we call faith. Hebrew says, now, faith is the substance of things hoped for. The evidence of things not seen. My best paraphrase of that text is, is uh, hope means believing in spite of the evidence and then watching the evidence change. And I tell the story I'll quickly recount here, and it's more in detail in the book. But when I went to South Africa for the first time, I had to be snuck in the country by South African churches, church leaders who wanted to be a, put together a strategy, American churches and South African churches, and we did. But I arrived at St. George's Cathedral uh, to meet with Desmond Tutu, and he was he was speaking because uh, a rally had been had, had been canceled by the government. He said, "Well, we'll have we'll have church, we'll have service. You can't cancel that." So he's up there preaching. Desmond Tutu, little man, long flowing robes behind this pulpit. Some 
some people think he looks like Yoda, you know, he just spark in his eye, joy in his face. And these South African security police break open the walls of his cathedral, St. George's, and line, line the walls with their tape recorders and their pads, as if to say, uh, go ahead, uh, you just came out of prison, we'll put you back in. Go ahead, be prophetic, we'll get it down. And, and they're surrounding him. And on the outside, there are hundreds of military police that I had to sneak through and pass to get into the cathedral. And so he's surrounded by the powers that be. And he stops speaking. He looks down. And clearly he's in prayer. And we're all waiting in that cathedral to know what's going to happen next. We're all terrified. Then he looks up and he smiles, that signature Desmond Tutu smile. He looks at the South African security police who are thugs. Uh, and he says, so you are powerful. Indeed, you are very powerful. But I serve a God who will not be mocked. And then, and then he started bouncing like a good Baptist preacher. So we invite you today to come and join the winning side. <laughs> and the young people leapt out of their on their feet and danced outside. This is toy toy dance they always did at protest. We follow them out, surrounded by all these these armed police who didn't know what to do with dancing worshipers who weren't afraid of them. Ten years mm -hmm. later, I'm back at the inauguration of Nelson Mandela. Guess who's master of ceremonies? Archbishop Desmond Tutu. I said, Bishop, do you remember that day in St. George's? And he smiled. I said, today, they've all joined the winning side. Because you couldn't find one person in South Africa that day who hadn't always been against apartheid, right? So he taught me the, the trajectory of hope for Christians, which is faith, sparking hope, creating action, and making change. Faith, hope, action, and change. And that's what I lay out in this last chapter. It's deeper than optimism. Many days I'm not optimistic. But hope is a decision we make because of this thing that we call faith. So, Walter, you always ask me about that, and that's right there in the last yeah. chapter of the book. Yeah. Walter, I'd like to ask you to close um, with just one of the things that I found about you as I've written your biography is this incredible sense of hope that runs right through the core, as Jim said, of your writing. And can you just talk a little bit about why we can continue to hope and what hope is in this moment? Well, uh, Jim's comment uh, triggers for me an awareness of the last verses of Isaiah 40, which we uh, usually translate uh, those who wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. But the Hebrew word is hope. Hmm. Those who hope upon the Lord will renew their strength. Wow. They shall walk and not be weary. They shall walk and hmm. not faint. They shall run and I don't not be exhausted. They shall have energy. Let's pick up on energy. Yeah. We see yeah. it's not in our institutions. Uh, it's in the God who stands over, uh, above, in, with, and under uh, the world. And uh, this God will not quit until God has God's way. Mm -hmm. And so to be with God is to be on Jim's 
winning team. Uh, and and what what the poem says in Isaiah 40 is if you don't have hope in God, uh, you'll be pooped. You'll be exhausted. You won't care. You won't do anything. Uh, and and so white nationalism encourages passivity. Don't do anything. Don't expect anything. Don't wait for anything. Don't hope for anything. Just take it the way it is. Uh, so the reference to God in all of this, well, God is God is the great guarantor uh, that the power of hate and death cannot win. Uh, so Jim's bid that we get on the winning side uh, is a very smart move. Get on the winning side uh, with the God of well-being. And, and so I think what you're saying is Jim's uh, word to us as manifesto is not just a, um, some optimistic uh, uh, word, but it's the hopeful winning word that uh, will be fulfilled in God's time, right? Right. Exactly. Exactly. Walter, what a what a benediction you just gave for yeah. the American churches and for this culture at this time. We've got to move much deeper than uh, optimism or or apathy. The cynicism is used by the powers that be to get us to withdraw. Right. So cynicism is really an act of privilege because those who are going to be most impacted by the loss of democracy are going to be the most marginal people, the right. ones who are really already in trouble, on the edge, not having their needs met. They're going to be the ones who suffer the most. So cynicism, uh, withdrawal, apathy uh, will just not just kill our hope, but kill a lot of people. And so I think this is a this is a calling, despite people's thoughts about candidates and their strengths and weaknesses and policy decisions. This has got to be a clear choice uh, that we make. Uh, democracy and dictatorship literally have to be named and are on the ballot. And so for us as believers, our our uh, our gift of hope, that's the gift we have most to bring. And Walter just described it so well. That's the gift of hope that I want to see the Christians and, and people of goodwill across faith traditions. That's what we have to, to, to give. we gotta, we got to be in God's side. As we close, uh, I just want to say to the listeners and viewers um, that there will be uh, a, a live event with uh, Jim. Uh, and if you would like to be part of that, all you need to do is pre-order the book, which is uh, now available wherever books are sold. Uh, and there will be a link to the to this podcast for you to pre-order the book. And then the, to let me know that you've done so, I'll provide my email address. And you'll get a Zoom link to be part of this live show with Jim, where he'll talk about the book, do some Q&A. And uh, also late summer uh, and early fall, there will be a reader's guide to go along with the book and a pastor's guide for uh, preaching and, uh, and leading congregations through a really critical time leading up to the election. Thank you again, Walter and Jim, for just a 
really stimulating, inspiring uh, conversation this afternoon. And uh, for what both of you have brought for the last 50 and 60 years to the church and to the prophetic voice uh, and with a prophetic voice, that is so needed. Thanks again, listeners, for joining us and uh, God's blessing in this critical moment in the life of the church and the world.